Hear ye, hear ye. Come one and all. Join us for a free introductory journey through occult theory and practice. Learn dazzling mysteries, occult sciences, and powerful spells. Heal the sick, curse your enemies, and attract the favor of that sexy human next door. All this can be yours absolutely free. All we ask is that you tune in every other week. Learn what you can and put it into practice. Some side effects may include stress relief, a new outlook on life, and a newfound obsession with small shiny objects. Tune in today. You know, I realized recently that a lot of like hardcore Wiccans and Pagans of specific paths will probably hate a lot of this show because we accept a bunch of different ideas and won't say any path is right or wrong or that kind of like all beliefs are in one way or another created equal. Hell, I don't agree with everything SRW writes, but if it works for someone, I say do it. So I think a lot of people are going to be like, they're foo-foo, hippy-dippy and all that. It's a possibility. Fluffy bunny is the term that I've heard to describe the Silver Raven Wolf flavor of Wiccan practice. Uh, And maybe a little bit us, because we do just take everybody as they are. We don't really differentiate that much. I personally don't think any single method or school of thought is any better or worse in a moral or practical sense than any other, with a couple of caveats. You can believe and do whatever you want to believe and do, as long as it doesn't interfere with my safety or my ability to do and believe as I please equally. Basically, if if I don't go about uh, trying to make people do things my way, I can expect that same courtesy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, humans are capable of a massive, elaborate swath of beliefs. So the power of belief comes from the individual. By the power of observation, we can determine that the power isn't necessarily inherent to the belief itself. People believe all sorts of stuff, and it works well for them individually. Yeah, definitely. Basically, the the core tenet of our perspective has been belief is a tool, and if you convince yourself something will work, it most likely will. Or more specifically, the chaos magician's phrase, nothing is real and everything is permitted. This uh, show might more aptly be titled The Fool's Guide to Chaos Magic. We just happen to uh, look at a bunch of different perspectives along the way, and we haven't explicitly done a This is Chaos Magic episode yet. Well, we we splash in some other stuff, but that's that's pretty much the truth. Uh, Now, I'm going to I'm going to get a little heavy with y'all gentle listeners Uh, Everything is permitted is a universal statement with a great deal of hidden meaning and responsibility involved. So for a chaos magician, everything is permitted is not followed by just for us. It speaks to the fact that everything is permitted for everyone who chooses to exercise their right to grasp the reins of the universe and ride it. It is reflected in various formats across occult practice, children's parables, various religious liturgy. So, you know, turn the other cheek, follow the golden rule. Uh, I think one of the best examples of this is a Doreen Valiente quote, uh, eight words the Wiccan read fulfill and it harm none do what you will. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, that's directly from Gardnerian Wiccan liturgy. And it's very, very serious about it harming none. Uh, Magical practice, especially magical ritual, 
affects the world around you and everyone in it. We're going over some important stuff on this episode. We're moving into the real nitty-gritty toolbox of the occultist, free-form ritual creation and established ritual practice, and using a combination of mindset, preparation, intent, will, and repetitive action, we're teaching you, gentle listener, how to change the world, just a little. And we don't know what you're going to do with these tools. So we are choosing to believe the best of you in the interest of education and the free exchange of knowledge, which are what we believe in. Don't let us down. All right. Well, with that, welcome to the Fool's Guide to the Occult. I'm Kevin, a.k.a. Debbie Downer. And I'm the phantom that keeps rearranging the books in your library. Asshole, they're alphabetized. And speaking of books, you want to start off our journaling for this week? Yeah, sure. Let's dive in. Uh, Last time we discussed tools of the trade, and so I've been playing around with different components recently. Just for fun, I started making a nifty wand out of a cannabis stalk, something I had done once in the past, but uh, not really intentionally. And this time I've gone more intentionally about kind of playing with it and carving it out and doing so different Even we follow the instructions to go home and practice what we talked about last time. Indeed. Uh, so I left all the roots on it because I just like uprooted the whole thing and I kind of trimmed around the roots and stuff to make it kind of cool in the back. Nice. Um, and then once it's fully dried, I'll. I'll do the rest of the work on it. Since episode four, I've also been thinking a lot about objects in space, uh, somewhat in a feng shui sense, uh, which would be a really fun and interesting episode to do sometime far off in the future. There was a Penn and Teller bullshit episode on that that was actually pretty good. No kidding. I haven't seen that. But I was also thinking of it in sort of like that Frederick Law Olmsted sense. Uh, he was one of the guys with a few others that inspired the City Beautiful movement back in the late 18th and into the 1900s. Pretty uh, personally heavily impacted by my environment. Uh, if things are disorganized and chaotic around me, I tend to feel very anxious. Uh, but if things are clean and neat and tidy, I feel at peace. And I think a lot of these things might have some impact on pretty much everyone to maybe a lesser degree, but nonetheless a significant one. And as such, I think it kind of directly ties into occult practice in a lot of ways and uh, a great degree of stuff we're going to talk about in this episode today. Sure, definitely. I kind of wish I was affected by mess in my environment that way, because let me tell you right now, my living space would be much cleaner if I was anxious because of mess. And I am not, so it is not. Ah, cleanliness is next to I mean, godliness. I don't live in a, live in a heap. I'm Someone sorry. once said cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, good thing I don't live there. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, so for my journal, I want to pull a recent entry from my dream journal for this one from early last week. I was, I would say, about half lucid for this episode. Like, I was aware that I was dreaming, but I was not in control of events in the dream. Uh, Things definitely had that dreamy quality about them, like fuzzy amorphous edges, not many straight lines, kind of a faint auditory echo, a sense of cavernous space, that sort of thing. Uh, And I was in a basement with tornado doors, counting cans full of beans, but the cans were cube instead of cylindrical. My Uncle Dave told me it was for easier storage. And then he informed me that he was giving up on the English language because it didn't have a word for snoring. (laughs) I went outside. 
I threw a javelin through a pumpkin, and then the dream ended, and I woke up terrified. I would be terrified yeah. as well. That is a interesting sequence of events. It is. Uh, I have no idea what this means, or if it means anything at all, but I write it down anytime I wake up with a strong emotional response. Uh, and there is, in fact, a story about my Uncle Dave, who talks in his sleep, and did at one point uh, tell my aunt, when she told him that he was snoring, that there was no such word in the English language, whereupon she realized that he was, in fact, asleep and talking to her. So that's kind of a, a reflection of an actual oh, story. All right. Um, this one, I think I'll keep turning this over in my head to see if it's relevant to anything. Uh, I give it like 60, 40 against, cause it was probably just residual stress from other stuff in life, but it is interesting imagery. Yeah. I definitely like the throwing a javelin through a pumpkin that like, yeah, I don't know why. I think I don't know how to throw a javelin. I'm, I'm like, I'm okay with a hatchet or a hawk, but I'm not, I'm not really that good at a javelin. Yeah, throwing. I, I don't think I've ever thrown a javelin or a spear before. I did it at a rent fair. Knives plenty of times, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, knives, yeah, but. Huh. And like weird, like mall ninja type uh, throwing stars also oh, at rent yeah, fairs. Oh, yeah, shurikens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or like the big, weird, like four pointed axe oh, things. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah. I don't think that's even a real thing. I, again, I classify that as mall ninja yeah, shit. Definitely. All right. Well, before we jump in today's ep- into today's episode, um, can we take a minute to talk about scope and sequence? Defo. All right. So our next episode was pegged to be about pathworking, which is a pretty specific type of ritual work. And I think it might be better saved for later. And Maybe. as this episode is talking about magical composition, I think we should give our listeners a few weeks to sort of play around with... Um, all the things we've thrown on their plate the past four, now five episodes. There is quite a bit. Yes. We've, we've given you a lot to explore. Um, basically, what we've done up to this point would be, you know, the first couple of years of many magicians and occultists practice. So sure. how do you feel about doing ep- episode six on the taxonomy of magical traditions? And then dive into like dream interpretation, astral work, stuff like that. Uh, I'm here for this. I like that you use the word taxonomy. I think that's a good word because really it is kind of like trying to catalog all this crazy stuff you see in the wild. Uh, And I don't think there is a bad time to go through solid fundamentals. So I have no problem doing a bit more of that as we move in forward. Um, Plus, maybe... Uh, we can go through what my super weird, possibly irrelevant dream might have meant. Yeah, good plan. I'd also like to use side quests as an opportunity to talk about some more well-known and established uh, traditional rituals, I guess we could say. For example, sure. like doing an episode on drawing down the moon or an episode on the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram and so forth. Uh, we could... Um, oh, actually, we were recently contacted by a gentleman who answered our call to discuss the nature of divinity. Uh, he's an independent Catholic archbishop, so I'm pretty excited about that, and uh, that could be another upcoming side quest. Oh, I dig that. Uh, we'll go through a bunch of ritual design work in this current episode, so there's plenty to practice, but we'll dedicate a few a, a few side quests to other established rituals and pattern workings. Uh, that we might not have time to cover here right now. I am super stoked 
to get to interview the gentleman regarding divinity for sure. Uh, gentle listeners, if you have life or professional experiences that are pertinent to this endeavor, get in touch. We would love to speak to you. Absolutely. All right. So today's episode is about writing your own magic, and it's going to be a bit longer than our previous episodes, but there was no way to really produce the quality of episode we wanted and keep it our normal length. Um, like we have a normal length. Yeah, not really. But it's it's around like an hour 10, an hour 15 or so, I think is our average. This is going to be longer than this that. This is going to be longer than that. And I'm not huge on splitting up lessons. I think it's really important to just kind of have it in one spot and just run with it. So, que sera, sera. And before we get started, I want to address something I thought of while editing our last episode. We've talked a lot about doing whatever feels right and really adapting things to your needs, which is great for um, very cast magic-y kind of stuff, but also great for a lot True. of different traditions. Um, I think we may have ignored something really fundamental for people who are new to magic and occult work in general. In magic, like any form of self-expression, fine art, music, dance, etc., you really should learn the rules before you go out and start breaking them. So if you're just starting out, I highly recommend you pick up some books on a specific path, any path that appeals to you, and start learning it and following it, even if your intention is to break the rules and go do your own thing later. It's really important to have some kind of solid foundation to leap off from, something more solid than I think we're capable of giving you right now. This is kind of like a survey course. Um, we'll get into specifics about certain topics and paths later on, but for the first like 10 episodes or so, this is like 10, yeah. This is a, a survey course, if you will. My introduction to occultism was was very Wiccan, albeit uh, fluffy bunny Wiccan, if you will and then sort of diverged into to chaos magic, but Wiccan-flavored nonetheless. Yeah, we'll get into like lab courses later, but right now is definitely survey. My intro was definitely a little more scattered in terms of my introduction to, to occult practice, uh, kind of really starting out with Jewish mysticism, and then there was numerology and related disciplines, and Wicca, light, and pathworking came kind of later on, and that's around the time I started playing with weird stuff. Like improvising like uh like a jazz musician yeah you got to totally. learn all the scales before you can bust it up so having a foundation in solid basics of honestly any tradition is extremely valuable to the beginning practitioner read learn seek out other people in that chosen tradition and if you find that the practice that you've undertaken doesn't fulfill your goals or your needs you can branch out from there. Yeah, and by the way, I refer to magic as a form of self-expression because you are expressing your will in or on the universe, projecting a piece of yourself out into space-time. So I really do feel like it is an art in the sense of self-expression. But magic as a form of expression somehow reminds me of uh, Maimato Musashi. In the Book of Five Rings, he says, to understand the sword, study the guitar. And really, he's talking about timing specific, and about mastering something. He's talking about he's talking about both timing yes, and about is. mastering and, something. Yeah, yeah, it gets deeper than that. There are many layers to that book, but yeah, 
in magic, martial arts, dancing, music, politics, making sweet love, whatever you want to learn to do well, study something else too. Something completely unrelated if you can. It only makes you more creative, makes your brain think differently. You can't have enough skills and they will always help you out in ways that will surprise you. Uh, creativity itself is magic and magic is creativity. The more you learn about different things, the more creative you will become and the rest follows. There are many components to a ritual. And I think what we are going to have to do is just our very best to give you a bare bones skeleton in this one and not give you too much in this system, blah. And then in that system, blah, uh, we'll largely try to speak to bare technical elements here. There's a fair bit in ritual practice that is fairly universal even if each individual tradition bases different theory and philosophy behind their techniques. Yeah, and before we get into it, I'd say that a lot. Before we get into this, anyway. Before we get, before into, we get into this, I want you to consider something. Every book in the New Age section of your local bookstore or library is made up. Think about that for a minute. Now let's pan out. Every book in the whole place is made up. All human knowledge is made up. Nothing is real and everything is permitted. We see the world through the filter of human senses. And that is what we put into books. Yes. According to Richard Webster, in his book, there are four steps to achieving your desires with magic. Uh, step one is to decide what you want. Step two is to write it down. Step three is to tell the universe, and step four is to attract the result to you. And that's that's pared down pretty far. Yes, it is. It's it. You can really attach any sort of larger framework to that if you desire. I think this is a bit of an oversimplification, I but agree. one thing Webster suggests early in this book, laden with excessive exposition. Um, that I absolutely agree with is keeping a notebook just for writing down your drawing or drawing your ideas. Uh, this way you are less likely to forget good things and things that you might want to weave into your magical work or regular work or artwork or whatever. See, like secretly everybody is big into everyone journaling. likes journaling like yeah. at, at the bottom of it. Like we talked about universal stuff. Yeah, journaling. I have like, Everybody loves totally. Journaling. I have five different journals. I have one by my bed for dream journaling. I have one for any sort of spiritual or magical shenanigans I get up to. I have one that I keep for uh, writing only, like uh, prose and when I play with poetry and stuff. I have one that is sketches for. Um, either art or things I'm trying to design, like armor I'm working on or something like that. And then I have one for specifically for writing down ideas for this show. Gentle listener, journal as much or as little as you want. Yeah, totally. In any event, components of a ritual. First thing, propose a statement of intent. Jot down your ideas for the work that you want to undertake. Gather advice through divination before your work is started. Uh, and then... What are your desires? What do you want? You need to be very clear and specific, sort of like writing a personal goal. Uh, you don't want to leave anything out. You don't want to be vague. Start out with something like, it is my will to blank. 
just to speak to your specific intentions. Uh, Phil Hine puts it, uh, when you say this, you're projecting yourself into the future. Put down limits as well. Have you ever seen that movie Wishmaster? People wish for all kinds of stuff that sounds great, and the djinn figures out a way to twist their request into unimaginable torture and not give them what they want and take their soul. I'm not saying this will happen, but if you aren't clear in your intent, don't be surprised if you get muddy results. Yeah, absolutely. And on this topic, Hein also writes uh, on page 79 of Condensed Chaos, um, proficiency at sorcery requires that you can isolate, identify, and focus upon specific desires while at the same time becoming detached from them. Desires manifest when they have been isolated, exteriorized, and then forgotten. This forgotten part is sort of a key component in chaos magic, especially in sigil work, that is fundamentally different from how many authors of Wiccan magic approach manifestation of their workings. Like Webster, Buckland, SRW, want you to take time to think about your desire after working your magic a little bit every day which is a pretty easy task. If it's something you truly want and you truly desire, you're probably been thinking about it already. It's much more difficult uh, to let it pass out of your mind entirely. We will cover this more when we do an episode on sigils and servitors and thought forms, but there seems to be some spooky power behind spooky power going on when you fully release your desire, let it go to the universe and go about your daily life. I mean, nobody likes that coworker that emails you every single day about that project that you're working on and you just don't need that. And there's no need to put that right. on the universe. The universe knows if you did a good job communicating it the first time, the universe knows what you want and you need to move on. So let's go into a little more detail on statements of intent, because they are very important. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Hein has a thing he calls the SWOT analysis. That's S-W-O-T. And it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I like to use this for more than just occult practice. This really is a good model for analyzing any course of action, be it a business endeavor, a military campaign, asking someone out on a date, whatever. SWOT analysis is a big thing in business and project management, a lot of like IT work, a lot of business analysis uses SWOT analysis specifically. And the same theory applies here. So S is for strengths, characteristics, and elements in your favor, like listing what you're good at, particularly good ritual spaces are a strength, uh, comfort and familiarity with your materials, general advantages that are adjectives rather than ephemera. Uh, W is for weaknesses, factors that are inherently reducing your ritual's effectiveness. So new unpracticed language, uh, being under time pressure, uh, being sick or distracted. O is for opportunities, things you can take advantage of by direct action to improve your effectiveness and your chances for success. Opportunities are about actions rather than strengths, which are traits or relatively permanent circumstances. So something like a full moon on Friday the 13th is an opportunity like we just had last weekend. Uh, your priestess being willing to add your personal ritual to an S-bot is an opportunity because you did something to take advantage of it. Uh, T is for threats, 
things that might happen to reduce your chances of success. Again, like strength versus opportunity, threats are actions by you or an outside party rather than weaknesses, which are more like a state of being or a, a, a temporary or relatively permanent circumstance. Uh, so like knocking over a candle and setting an unintended fire is a threat. Your asshole stepdad is a threat. Acting against portents when you took the time to divine before your ritual is a threat. Bringing unreciprocated wickedness into the world is a threat. Great analysis. Uh, the next step is what Hein called linking intent, which in Condensed Chaos focuses largely around the making of some form of sigil out of your statement of intent. But sigils uh, get their own episode. So if you already have a familiarity with them, you already know how to use them or make them, by all means, go ahead. If not, we're that's a more complex thing we're going to push off to its own we'll come back to that we'll that'll be back. a lab course it will that's not it a survey will. topic correct uh planning so, phase is next planning phase yes so uh consult your magical correspondence charts do research uh look for portents and omens divine just develop a plan for tricking your brain into creating links between certain components of the ritual you're developing so things that you might want to consider include what metals to use if you're crafting an amulet or a talisman. What herbs and incense are appropriate to your working and or pleasing to you and the entities you might be working with. Stones, crystals, gems that might be useful and appropriate to your work. Color correspondences. These can be for candles and other elements of your environment like uh, your altar cloth or... Sure. The drapes in the room or um, the color of your robe. Uh, if you should work at day or nighttime and under a waxing or waning moon. In general, um, historically, waxing moon has been considered to be used for constructive magic, whereas the waning moon is for magic involving change or destruction. Uh, although in Psychonaut, Peter J. Carroll argues that all magic is better performed under the full moon, as according to him, there is more psychic energy about. Yeah, I heard that, and this may be a total urban myth, but I heard that like major cities like New York City staff more police officers and um and hospital workers. and hospital workers on the full moon because people just generally are crazier. I don't know. If that's true or not, it appeals to me. I'm entertained by the idea of it. Yeah. But I can't speak to the veracity of that. Yeah, either either can I. Interestingly, nonetheless. Very. The days of the week are considered by some to be ruled by specific planets and are more important to pay attention to in order to achieve certain results. This seems to be related uh, back to like Greco-Roman traditions in which each day was represented by one of the gods. Personally, I don't care much about the day of the week, although I find Wednesday to be a good day for me to engage and play with the universe. I like Wednesdays and Fridays because I don't have anything going on after work. Ah, I always have something going on Friday night. That's fair. Uh, so anyways, we encourage you to have a representative of the four classical elements present or five, if that fits your particular flavor of practice better. So your words are your breath, have a candle for fire, some kind of liquid, maybe sanctified or holy water. Earth is all around you, or you could have rocks around your altar, the outside world, metal of any kind, wood of any kind, so forth. 
when it comes to candles, you can dress them up, you can bless them, carve them like a spell or a sigil into the candle. Uh, some people also recommend using beeswax or animal fat candles only instead of paraffin. I personally find paraffin much easier to carve. Yeah, that's absolutely true. As far as like a carving wax or shaping wax goes, uh, paraffin holds its structure a lot it better. Does. Um, I was actually going to make the argument in this episode that uh, we should only buy beeswax candles because of the decline in the bee populations and to support their reestablishment. But I decided to speak to a friend who is really knowledgeable about these things. And it turns out that most apiaries import foreign bees and then kill the queens. So they're not really the bee populations that we need to reestablish. Um, if you know someone with an apiary, like a, you know, a friend that's just doing a little local thing and they're yeah, using like local, is great. local native bees, um, then you can probably get their beeswax and that would like be fine. That would be good. But develop as far a local as... network of resources like beekeepers. Absolutely. Actually, what's that phrase? Think local, act global. Totally. Sure. Anyway. When it comes to writing out your actually spoken words or spell to be burned, Webster suggests writing in couplet. Personally, I'm a fan of using some sort of rhyme scheme in my wording for rituals, partially because it's just fun. And um, I think like like Anton LaVey kind of alludes to in the Satanic Bible that that part of the appeal to magic and ritual work is the pageantry of it. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I the think theater that, of it. Yeah. And I think that goes to like just add to the energy of the experience and makes everything you do all the more powerful. But it's not entirely necessary or um, or even really always practical to write in rhyme scheme. If you want to, you can. If you want it to have more of an epic feel, do that. If you want it lighthearted, do that. If you're not really like a poetic type person or whatever like as long as it's personal and meaningful to you it will work absolutely and i feel like practical isn't always what you should be chasing with ritual work because there is some power in not only the theater of it but the extra time and consideration of it i think yes. that in particular is something to keep in mind um, however you choose to write out your spell you make sure you choose your words carefully like that's that extra care and extra involvement, extra think time. So refer back to your statement of intent. You might need to edit that statement of intent if you find that it doesn't perfectly reflect what you're doing. You want to make it as condensed as possible without losing any meaning in the interest of efficiency. And I have a great love for artfully selected words. Yes. Selecting the, the best, most meaningful word to put in a spot. I think there's a lot of craft in that. Uh, if you are petitioning any spirit or deity for assistance, you should probably consider using some high quality paper or parchment for writing down the spell. It shows you made an effort. You're not just some rube working with printer paper. Uh, if all you have is printer paper, that's fine. Use printer paper. But if you are taking your time, make the writing look nice. You're putting energy and effort into thinking about your ritual and its intent the entire time. Yeah. And since we're moving on from statement of intent, I, intent, I want to circle back to mentioning that horror film, Wishmaster, 
Oh, man. It's never going to be as horrifying, but if you aren't really specific with what you're asking for, um, your vague request may be translated into any one of a myriad of different outcomes. So the Jin and Wishmaster was actively inimical, was actively working against the people making the wishes. The universe isn't really like that. Right. The universe doesn't care that much. It's going to do whatever is most efficient that satisfies what you indicate that you want. So if you indicate very, very specifically what you want, only your result will satisfy your request. Otherwise, yeah, if you're more vague, you might get something lesser or parallel, but not actually helpful. And sometimes humorous, to be honest, like the universe has a weird sense of humor. It's a surreal place we live. Yes. Yes, it is. So actions to be carried out. Uh, This might involve burning candles, uh, pictures, burying something special, tying a rope or cord around a fetish or a poppet, screaming. Uh, But it also involves everything from casting the circle, banishing negative energy, cleaning your space, meditating, entering gnosis, doing magical stuff closing the circle, declaring the end of the ritual, all that. So we will come back to actions at the end of this episode. Yes, but I do want to make one point here. Uh, Where you do the ritual matters to some degree. Absolutely. Obviously, the best place to perform your rituals is wherever you will not be disturbed. But if possible, you should participate in ritual in a location that is most conducive to the magic you want to perform. That Absolutely. Mean... You want to Yeah, go ahead. You want to find a place that there's like an escalating list of how good a place you're in. So like some place public where you're going to be bothered is not a great place for a ritual unless being bothered is part of the ritual. Correct. Uh some place where you're comfortable and probably alone is better. Some place that you've carefully selected to do this work is really best. Absolutely. So, you know, it it could mean being outside under a clear sky at night if you're working with the moon or near a river or other body of water if you're working with that element and so forth. Just make sure you have as much room as you need and you won't be disturbed. Uh, Those are, I think, the most important parts. So let's talk about the emotional component of doing a ritual. I'm all about this. This is like a, a big one I'm really interested in. Practitioner state management is a big thing. Totally. On page 113 of Write Your Own Magic, Richard Webster posits desires that have an emotional component to them are always more successful than uh, requests that have been worked out clinically and logically. So practically, it means that you need to really truly want something from like deep down in your guts and the weird lizardy bits in the back of your brain. So this is why we use Gnosis, because without that singular focus and purity of purpose, people just aren't wired to send a single clear message out into the world. There's just too much going on in our brains when we're not in this altered state of mind with crystallized emotional states and clear, specific desires. Especially for those of us with ADD. All right, let's bust out the Satanic Bible by Anton Zandor LaVey. We always do. We never regret it. No, never once. 
LaVey refers to desires as the first ingredient in a successful ritual. Without desire for the outcome, the working cannot succeed. Desire, well, desire, why are you doing the thing? Right. Or the like, prove it doesn't work or prove it does right. or something like that. But desire no. is a stronger emotion uh, than want. I want some traditional style carne asada street tacos right now. I, I desire. I want that now. I desire liberation from wage slavery. There's a big difference between the two. But I want street tacos. Yeah, I always want street tacos. Yeah. LeVay discusses evoking emotion several times in the Satanic Bible. Bringing about deep states of emotion is essential to successful work. If it is love you want, you need to feel it deep inside your chest. If it is destruction, um, you desire, conjure up feelings of rage although we've already told you you shouldn't be doing this kind of magic if it's peace and harmony which you desire then you need to get yourself blissed out we're not going to tell you that any one particular form of magic you should never do but you should consider that there are extra costs when you're taking things apart as opposed to when you're building things up i'm not going to say i've never tried any sort of destruction magic i'm just going to say that there are costs and leave it at that. There are. So uh, furthermore, LeVay writes anything which serves to intensify the emotions during a ritual will contribute to its success. Any drawing, painting, sculpture, writing, photograph, article of clothing, scent, sound, music, tableau, or contrived situation that can be incorporated into the ceremony will serve the sorcerer well. And all of those things are what we're talking about next. Yep, absolutely. So let's hit the sensuous stuff. The components um, that are, you know, appealing to your senses. Right, sensuous as opposed to sensual, which is about how aesthetically pleasing some people are. Yeah. So unless you are casting spells from a deep meditative state inside a sensory deprivation tank, you are Lucky going to you. need to unify the sensory of environment as much as possible to make it conducive to your work. Your ultimate goal with this is to create a perceptual gestalt. That is a, a unified sensuous experience where all of the sensory elements are aligned and working with each other to maximize your expression of will. Uh, for now, we are going to keep it somewhat basic, the environment around you, but later on you can start visualizing everything and create a uh, perceptive uh, gestalt entirely different from your surroundings. But this is getting into the realm of pathworking, which is another episode unto itself. That kind of practice for visualization work will come with time, but we're not going to quite get into that yet. That said, you need to be practicing your visualization. We've already given Practice you a couple things to play with in that realm, and those skills are, are very important. So Flex those that. imaginative muscles, gentle listener. Please do. Uh, Phil Hine has an interesting section on expanding your sensory experience, working on sensual visualization, sensuous visualization. I don't know which one he meant. Yeah, I don't know. On page 66 of Condensed Chaos, which I think may be useful to many people in that imaginative muscle flexing that we all need to work on in order to get good at this. Yeah, and he goes through each of the five senses and like different exercises you can do to like visualize 
or I, I don't know if visualization is even really the right word, but um, recreate the other senses, like hearing generating the sensory generate, experience. Yeah, yeah. Or like the taste of a lemon or the smell of street tacos and like street tacos bringing that about. So it's yeah. Let's let's start hitting on some of the senses. How's that sound? Back to LeVay. All right. Visual. As LeVay puts it in the Satanic Bible, visual imagery utilizes, uh, utilized for emotional reaction is uh, certainly the most important device incorporated into the practice of lesser magic. Anyone who is foolish enough to say looks don't mean a thing is indeed deluded. Good looks are unnecessary, but looks certainly are needed. Now, I'm not going to say I would say visual imagery is the most important aspect of lesser magic or any other magic for that matter, save for parlor tricks and illusions. That said, it does have an important role to play. And here we have broken it down into two types. The first is real imagery, such as colors relative to our objective. So if your objective is... Uh, sexual magic or love magic maybe you'll use pink or red money would be green or gold healing would be white so forth standard standard associations apply as long as you can create that association in your head absolutely Um, this also involves the written word or numerology or sigils um, or any other symbol not just sigils but you know, using the use of the uh, the pentacle or um, the eye of Horus or any Icons other like that definitely. Yeah, any other visual imagery. Um, it could also be a picture of someone if you're trying to do magic on or for someone else. Like um, a tableau or a mimicry, if you can convince a bunch of people to act something out for you. Yeah, or um, something like a a poppet or um, any other kind of uh, link to. Uh, a person, place, or thing. Sure. The next bit would be imagined or visualized imagery. Uh, so pathworking, again, we'll talk about this later, but visualizing the end result, uh, you enjoying the result or the the benefit of your magical working. Uh, this is sort of like, like, like baby's first pathworking, like pathworking light, but putting yourself in the place of success, imagining that visual. And since we've, talked about it a couple times um let's just kind of describe what pathworking is since we're leaving it off for another episode okay uh pathworking is essentially a, a form of magic ritual that you do in a guided meditation state so sometimes uh, you'll pre-record the walkthrough for yourself um but basically it all takes place in your mind so it's sort of like a meditative uh sort of ritual a meditative journey, a guided experience. Yeah, at least that's my my understanding of it. That's roughly mine as well. Uh, let's talk about olfactory or or smells. Yes, smells um, in your ritual work. Yes, those street tacos. Mm. For you, whatever you think smells nice or reminds you of your intentions is cool, something you might use. So for me, I use white sage a lot. I use uh, lavender a lot. I really like lavender. 
Nag Champa, Sandalwood. Um, I'm really fond of, if I want to feel like really relaxed and at peace and feel surrounded by love, I'll use um, lilac because my grandmother had a bunch of lilac trees. And she... yeah, my mom had a lilac bush outside our window when I was yeah. growing up. So yeah, I'm kind of the same way on that one. Yeah, strong emotions related to that. Right. Uh, for others involved or invoked in your ritual work, uh, if you are trying to petition a certain spirit or deity or being, pick a scent that they like if they have a liturgy that tells you what they like. If you know that a specific herb is associated with luck and you're trying to get a new job, you might burn that. Like that kind of association or direct pull from written works about a being in question. Yeah, and I think... Most authors of books on magic have uh, correspondence charts for herbs, uh, incense, stones, and metals in their books. Sure. Um, I know Richard Webster has a small one in his. We've recommended uh, Scott Cunningham's books to you already. Um, I'm so sure Peter J. Carroll has one somewhere. I'm sure he does. Uh, Silver Raven Wolf, of course. And then oh, yeah. you can always just Google this stuff and find it online. I actually found an interesting uh, website recently called, what was it called? It's like Wikipedia or something like that, which is like yeah. a, a Wikipedia for, for Wiccan magic. So you can find that stuff on there as well. Some common herbs, though. We've got frankincense. Frankincense. Uh, it's commonly associated with protective and healing work. Myrrh is commonly associated with purification and exorcism. Uh, these two combined work really well together. Uh, dragon's blood tree sap uh, to add energy and power to a spell. Sage to cleanse and banish. I know folks who used to combine small amounts of all four of these, kind of evenly distributed or modified to suit whatever features they were attempting to make most prominent I'm uh, one of to those create folks. their own banishing and grounding incenses. Yeah, that's my favorite herb mix right there. Not a bad one. Uh, taste and touch. We're going to, I guess, combine taste and touch. Uh, yeah, because we don't really have a whole lot to say about them. Um, no. I, I think it's important. I guess you could eat something during a ritual. And a lot of people do. Like if you're, uh, especially if you're Wiccan and you're performing Sabbath. Um, sure then you know there's the libations to the, the god and goddess so you have the sacrament and the, would probably and be on the wine. list of these yeah so um but you know just like smell it smell and smell and touch can can have a huge impact on your experience you know should things in your ritual be rough or soft cold or warm how is this related to your work at hand personally i like to be really comfortable but again like oh, yeah. if you're doing some kind of work that requires you to be more tense and more like alert then maybe you want to be in a cold environment maybe you want like a cold rock or concrete or steel floor beneath you maybe you want you know that I might be sleepy useful. if i'm too warm so i yeah. need to usually keep it a little bit chillier if i'm not gonna like pass out if i'm otherwise really relaxed for ritual work so Definitely. i gotta keep it a little bit chilly so there are practical considerations like that in terms of sensory environment. Absolutely. Uh, if you're making offerings to a specific supernatural being again, uh, and there are flavors that they prefer, you know, tying back into herbs or, or other 
scents that they prefer. If you're celebrating a specific holiday or a Sabbat, uh, there are certain foods that are traditional or that are required for various reasons. Then use those. Use those. Uh, Noises, auditory and sound components to ritual. Yeah. Words are auditory symbols. Um, I would have just said basically, but I stopped myself. They literally are. They're auditory symbols. Uh, That's what they are, yeah. An incredible amount of power. But like all symbols, they mean different things to different people. Love, for example, is a subjective experience, the experience of which is different from person to person. Simply saying the words, I love you or I hate you, has the ability to conjure incredible emotion and energy in both the speaker and the listener, and they may be entirely different experiences. They might. Choosing the right words when you design a ritual chant or spell or poem, uh, very important. Richard Webster uh, puts it in Write Your Own Magic. The word home means so much more than house, even though they might both be describing the same thing. Choosing words that evoke strong emotions and links in your mind will make your magic all the more powerful. So like the classic tongue in cheek one is the difference between forgive me, father, for I have sinned and I'm sorry, daddy, I've been naughty. (laughs) With that, let's take a, a moment here to talk about affirmations. We will most likely go into this in a little bit more detail when we talk about reprogramming in the future. Uh, in New Age circles, it's often boiled down to positive thinking and self-empowerment. Ultimately, what people are trying to do when they use affirmations is manifest a desire or a change through repeating a certain phrase periodically throughout the day, either by reading it aloud or just in their mind. The goal is to implant a habit of thought. This is not dissimilar to the way delusions are formed. The more you entertain an idea, the more real it becomes and the stronger effect it has on your day-to-day existence. They're usually usually phrased as if the statements are already true. For example, I am a positive person rather than I want to be or I will become a positive person. Interestingly enough, I was recently not recently, almost a year ago now, reading um, this book called Quantum Psychology by Robert Anton Wilson, the same guy that did the Illuminatus series. Sure. And he, that was a great series. Yeah, it was a great series. Uh, he was talking about E-prime English, which we're not going to go into, but he, he made an interesting point when he said, in the West, we often say, like, I am sad or I am depressed. Whereas in other countries, they might say something more like a great sadness has come over me or, a, you know, a great depression ha- has come into my life. The difference- or even just the more transitive I am feeling. Right. Blank. Absolutely. Instead, we identify ourselves as our emotions. And that might not seem like a big deal, but you're sort of implanting that belief into your brain when you're saying it that specific way. I see this all the time in schools where kids will say, I'm not smart or something like that. And we encourage them to have a growth rather than fixed mindset. So just transition that self-talk. Yeah. Be careful about what kind of language you're using and how you're using it and what impact that might have on your brain long-term. Right. 
So auditory, it goes beyond spells, affirmations, mantras. It involves other ambient noises, that sensory environment we've been talking about. So a babbling creek or the distracting noise of a highway or using certain types of music to create emotional states based on an attachment you already have. All of these contribute to the environment of a ritual. Yeah. All of these components together should create a harmonious, unified experience, what we call a gestalt. This overall experience, this is not a magical term, but rather a phrase that comes from psychology and refers to an organized whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. The more you can align the elements of a ritual and generate a unified experience, the better you can trick your brain altering your perceived reality and leading towards a higher chance of success. This works whether you truly believe that you are manipulating the forces of the universe, petitioning deities, spirits, and magical creatures, or if you are just uh, trying to short-circuit your brain and use magic as a placebo-type effect. Kind of like when um, Kevin Googles uh, quartz crystals are good for blah. Quartz is good for blank. (laughs) Hey, the system works. And we've talked a bit about practitioner state management is a is a term that I'm using to describe the fact that you need to generate within yourself the state of mind, the emotional state, the connective state, the thought patterns that you need to be successful. So this really describes that process. Yeah. Absolutely. Next up, we're talking about types, types of energy. Of before energy. We move on. So, uh, before diving right into crafting your own magic rituals, we want to take a look at an excerpt from Spiral Dance by Starhawk. In chapter eight, they discuss three types of energy. The first is elemental energy. This is, of course, the substance of the four slash five classical elements we've mentioned before: fire, water, air, earth, and or uh what is it wood and metal yes wood and metal Um, yeah and then spirit or or void i've heard it as uh this is the energy you feel flowing to you as you walk by the ocean hike to the top of a mountain take a stroll in the forest bury your toes in the sand uh sit in front of a comfy fire with a hot whiskey because they're delicious it's uh Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. It is part of the reason many established rituals are historically performed barefoot. And why you'll most often find me barefoot, like right now. Yeah. Uh, The second type is the type I undoubtedly work with the most. Uh, This is astral energy, the energy of the conscious mind and of imagination. According to Starhawk, it is the force that makes up both the astral realm and the dream plane, as well as what we'll call the astral body in the occult. Um, but magic can also be done by uh, harnessing this energy. Uh, I would actually go out on a limb and say a large portion of magic is done using this type of energy and that any ritual, even if it focuses on one of the other two types, elemental or the one we'll talk about next, still employs a good deal of astral energy. I agree. I feel like astral energy is because it is generated often by focus and belief. It's more of a pure focus and belief energy. It's kind of what you use to guide your implementation of other forms of energy. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like 
uh, a lot of organic magic. We'll talk about organic magic, just magic that happens on its own in the world is really powered by astral energy because it's going to be something that's generated by mass belief. And mass belief is just a whole bunch of people focusing on a thing that they want. And sometimes the universe decides that's good enough. We'll do that. Yeah, definitely. So at some point in the future. It didn't work when they were trying to levitate levitate the Pentagon. It did not. I don't know if it was enough people. I don't know if the Pentagon was willing. So... We'll just kind of have to maybe try that again. Uh, we'll do a Kickstarter for that maybe sometime. We'll set up a we'll set up a Kickstarter, and and we'll have like a Facebook event. Uh, speaking we'll of Facebook, gentle listeners, once you're done in Area Fifty One, come with us. We'll hoist the huh. Pentagon with the power of thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about that third kind of energy? third kind of energy is referred to by Starhawk as Deep Self or the energy that belongs to the gods themselves. Uh, personally, I'm like a like a light mayo version of an atheist, like agnostic, undecided something, in the sense that I don't necessarily believe in deities that are not thought forms subordinate to human will. Uh, as such, deep self works better for me in terms of terminology. Uh, I imagine a good number of our listeners may prefer uh, divine or goddess energy to describe this type. That's fine, too. Whatever works for you. You will experience this type of energy when invoking a deity, when working with high magic. Like, that's what Krieg talks about. Krieg. Krieg. Uh, Or when allowing yourself to become host to a deity, such as in Drawing Down the Moon or Sutton Rites in Voodoo or Vodun. Uh, so stuff like that. Uh, you can work with any or all of these three different flavors of energy in your magical practice, uh, either consciously or unconsciously. And we will talk more about how to mix them together as we move forward. So next, we're, we're moving on to working your own magic. And we don't really have a stuff you should practice this week. It's more like this whole episode is, is the, the stuff. stuff you should practice. So um, we're just going to jump right into it. Yep. But um, remember, magic hinges on the principle that everything in the universe or multiverse is interrelated, if not connected in some way. But writing your own magic is kind of like art. You need to learn the rules before you break them. So creating stuff is awesome, and it will be more powerful Um, because it is a true expression of yourself. But you need to know the parameters of what you're playing with, even if, you know, they they are entirely made up. Um, You need to know the parameters first so you don't totally throw your internal and external universe into a state of complete and utter discord. Yeah. You got to kind of, like, you got to know the color wheel before you can start messing with it. You got to kind of understand composition before you can play with composition. Like a lot of those classical art forms, you need to know the rules so that you understand why breaking them or adapting them might be beneficial. Yes. It's also important to keep a few basic things in mind. Uh, We talked earlier about harm none, do what you will. uh, And the basic reality that you cannot effectively work magic to create a situation that is an impossible outcome for you. 
like uh, our our buddy Shadow on the Wall, who fucks up my library, mentioned in the first series of side quests, there is no amount of magic that will make you grow taller or longer or hairier or what have you. You can only really use magic to tip the already teetering universal balance in your favor. There are situations in which you could generate conditions beyond this basic premise, but the price gets very high, and we'll talk about this in the future. These are some of the bigger workings that you might undertake later on. That's not what we're doing today. Yeah, and as Starhawk reminds us in the Spiral Dance, what affects one thing affects in some way all things. All is interwoven into a continuous fabric of being, It's warp and weft or energy, which is the essence of magic. There are a couple things here. One is how this uh, relates to the butterfly effect from physics, which should remind us to be mindful of what sort of energy we send out into the universe and how we do it. Uh, The other is that magic is about working with energy. So before you start putting your spell together or your ritual together, You want to make sure the goal or intent of your working feels right. Does it align with your personal code of ethics? Have you even sat down and written out a personal code of honor or moral code? If not, maybe you should think about those things. Does it feel reasonable to accomplish? Are you willing to be able to sacrifice the cost of executing this ritual emotionally, spiritually, monetarily if there are components that you need that you don't have readily available to you um, then you need to craft a solid statement of intent and after that there are a few steps to follow i want to drop in here a principle from science from modern science uh, specifically physics and that is that in a closed system energy is neither gained nor lost and that's true here too because when you're working magic like this the system is the universe You are impacting the universe, and as such, you don't gain or lose energy. So if you are expending energy in order to create an effect, it has to come from somewhere. And I got bad news. It's coming from you. Yeah. So whatever you feel you need to enact, remember that that energy is coming from you. You may be directing energy from other sources, but all of the impetus behind that comes from the practitioner. So despite what people like Richard Webster may say, there's not really a set amount of time you should spend on the following. You should make sure that you feel ready, and it is important to make sure you have all the components and implements that you're going to need with you before you start. Absolutely. And with that, let's dig in. Let's roll. We're talking about cleansing and creating sacred space first. So okay, whenever so what you do we need? start, yeah, you got to have... You know, what we're going to talk about is like uh, banishing, grounding, centering um, before we begin our actual work. Um, Right. So, you know, there are different ways to do this. We've talked about some of them before. Uh, White sage, palo santo, that blend of four herbs we talked about earlier. for Some kind of holy or sanctified water. Right. Uh, Sometimes in Wicca, you would use the broom to physically and symbolically clear a space. Um, Uh, You might use a feather. Sure, a blessed 20-inch box fan. How do you go about blessing an entire box fan? I guess you could consecrate a box fan for this. Yeah, you just sprinkle blessed water on it and consecrate Not on it. the motor, maybe. 
the but motor. on the rest of the box fan. Well, the oh, motor yeah, of the box. Yeah, you don't want to. If you get a spray bottle, you mean you could put your blessed water in a spray bottle and spritz it while it's on. You ever do that when you were a kid? Spray water into a fan? Yeah, that's true. I did. Yeah, it's totally fine. Okay. Yeah, blessed box fan. And with that, let's talk about banishing and casting the magic circle. All right. If you go back to, I think it was episode two, we talked about a couple simple banishing exercises. Um, But here's a favorite of mine, and it it comes directly from uh, Chaos Magic. And I think both Peter J. Carroll and Phil Hine talk about it. And it's just laugh, laugh hysterically, uncontrollably until nothing but sheer silliness fills you and you're completely exhausted. This is not at all a traditional method of banishing. Um, and like I said, it comes from chaos magic, but it really does work, not just in magic, but in ordinary life when your brain gets bogged down and stuck in a thought loop, it's like a a palate cleanse for your brain. Like a quick power wash. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, another option would be the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, uh, from ceremonial magic. Uh, we may do an entire episode or I think we're doing a side quest where we just teach the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram. Yeah, I think that would be um, the side quest. Yeah. If ceremonial magic is your jam, consult Krieg uh, or someone that you're learning from directly. If you've got a mentor, uh, there are all kinds of other magical banishings you can do. If you're, if you are familiar with Catholicism, you can exercise the space. Although I believe Catholic exorcisms must be individually approved by the Vatican. You may need to write out for that permission. Um, you can also sprinkle blessed or holy water. Some people also like to use just plain salt. I personally use a Swiffer. And um, on page 114 of Condensed Chaos, Phil Hine provides an interesting chaos version of the LBR, the Lesser Banishing Ritual, uh, that I think is really good, but also... It, it's just a basic framework. So, I mean, you could use exactly what he writes, but I think uh, it should be adapted by the user. to. It's fit really meant to be adapted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another important component of cleansing and banishing space uh, is the grounding and centering component. This has less to do with external space and more to do with your own internal space. According to Phil Hine, this has three essential components. The first being... Uh, aware of oneself the second visualizing yourself at the the center of the magical universe creating an axis mundi uh, and then third merging the outer experience with the inner experience so according to phil hine creating this axis mundi is the key to the doors of exploring the inner worlds and to the deep mind which he mentions is very susceptible to the power of suggestion Uh, that's something we'll set aside uh, until our episode, until our episodes on pathworking and self hypnosis come along. Yeah, but the grounding and centering component deserves a little discussion here. Grounding is becoming aware of the physical and its connection with the earth. This is why you will find me barefoot most of the time. I like to feel physically connected to the space I'm in, especially if I'm outside. Uh, if you are out in nature doing magic, grounding is basically as simple as connecting your bare feet to the earth. But if you are inside, you may need to do some kind of visualization and meditation to bring this about. Many people teach this thing called the tree of life meditation, where basically you imagine uh, roots growing out of your feet um, off, you know, the lower portion of your body. If you're sitting, 
uh, deep down into the earth and connecting in with the earth and branches with leaves coming off the top of you. And then there's this whole thing about visualizing where all your energy is and bringing it home to you and stuff. It's uh, probably one of the most popular grounding techniques I know of and I've heard of. Um, You could totally just Google tree of life meditation and I'm pretty confident you'll find many people teaching it out on the web. If you're working with elemental energy, grounding and centering is essential. You can use the tree of life meditation and it will do both. If you're working with astral energy, which is where I am most of the time, I really feel like Zazen meditation, um, reaching that Zen, um, that Zen point of, of single pointed focusness, similar to Gnosis is really where it's at. All of this stuff, when you reach that point, just kind of slips away and you just become a channel or a conduit of a vessel of raw spiritual power. But if you are following a strictly Wiccan or other pagan path, um, make sure you're using whatever techniques fit into that belief. system. In terms of grounding actions, the one that I've seen and heard of the most has to do with combining your symbol for air with your symbol for earth in some physical way while engaging in your meditation. So for instance, if you have a bowl of salt, uh, you would then uh, drop your wand or your Vajra or whatever your air symbol is into that bowl of salt straight up and down, creating a physical representation of that grounding mindset. And then you would combine that with your meditative practice. Yes, definitely. Um, There's also invoking the soul resonance, which is taught by um, in the uh, cartoon guide to chaos magic. Um, And I don't think that's expressly laid out as a grounding and centering ritual, but it sort of functions in that way. So that's another thing that maybe is worth looking into. Definitely. Uh, Before beginning your meditation, you may want to cast your magic circle and enclose your space. Uh, You can pretty much use anything to cast your circle, staff, sword, wand, dagger, finger, flower, root, dried cannabis stock, whatever you got around. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, make sure your space is cleared, blessed, and banished. You can describe the physical area however you desire with uh, stones. You can draw a circle in chalk, candles, um, draw the circle in the sand or in the dirt, and... This is not even entirely essential. You could be out in the grass somewhere. You don't have to describe it physically. But you just describe it in your head properly, though. Yeah. Yeah. Many people find it helpful. Definitely. Um, So you've already grounded and centered. But if you are working elemental magic or ceremonial magic, uh, you may wish to call down the quarters. We'll go through calling down the quarters. Yeah, that's a separate. That's another um, side quest. A separate episode. We don't have. We can't go into all that right now. Nope. Side quest, calling down the quarters. Noted. Now, uh, raise your circle casting implement, whatever it may be. State your will to cast the magic circle for your intended purpose, such as... Uh, To create sacred space. Sure. um, To protect yourself from outside energy or entities, such as when summoning spirits in ceremonial magic, or to create some sort of protective circle for any other reason. Uh, to trap and enclose ritual energy that you raise until you are ready to release it. To trap or house beings or spirits you intend to conjure inside the circle. Uh, any combination of the above, really any 
other reason you wish. Just state a clear purpose behind casting a circle, even yeah. if it's so I don't wander off. Or you might be doing it just for practice. That's totally you fine, might. too. It's really but important. state that as your purpose. Indeed. So what you're going to wow. do, you're going to aim your wand or what have you at the ground at any point along the circle, unless you're following a specific tradition that requires you to say start at uh, a specific cardinal direction. Now, trace the circle in the air around the circumference of the space. Many people like to imagine a bright white or light blue fiery light coming out of the tip of your wand or other implement and forming a circle as you move along. Whatever you do, feel the energy flowing out of you and creating this magical field. Move clockwise until you've come back to where you started. You may also desire to make a top, a dome, if you will. You you can absolutely do that. A lid. A lid. Uh, when you are all done with your ritual celebration, uh, your mating before the gods or whatever it is you're up to, you, one more time you will raise your casting implement to the sky, make it known that you desire to deconstruct your circle. So aim your tool at a point along the circle, visualize the energy either fading away, sinking into the earth, reabsorbing into your implement, turning into smoke, dissipating as you move counterclockwise around the circle. After you are all done with your work, you may wish to ground and center again. And that's the classic method of creating the circle. When I'm doing work on my own, I, I do this by harnessing my own energy, um, sort of like, a, I don't know, an aura, but it just starts as like a, a ball of energy in the center of my chest. Your invisible yeah, arc reactor. And I push it out from the, the center of my body in a sphere that encompasses the space I'm working in. But this is a method I developed for myself a long time ago, and it's just what works for me. I, I like it uh, though, because the energy passes from the center of me, and as it does, it, it in addition to creating this this circle, um, it cleanses, it banishes, it blesses the space around me, as well as um, you know working to to ground and center. This takes a tremendous deal of practice and experience to pull off, so probably not a beginner's move. Uh, yeah, for a method that, that seems to be a hybrid of this one um, that I developed on my own. And the traditional magic circle can actually be found in Liber Null by Peter J. Carroll. He seems to prefer uh, three-dimensional shapes, as do I, uh, describing both a spherical shape that can be created and a pyramid-type barrier. Um, he also includes the use of uh, personally significant magic symbols to be inscribed on that surface. Kind of big on platonic solids is Peter J. Carroll. Uh, and if you want a very free form, open interpretation example of creating a magical barrel barrier or a circle of protection, uh, see chapter two, level seven of Arch Trader Blue Flukes cartoon guide to chaos magic. Uh, we'll call back to that again, which you should be able to find with a simple Google True that. search. With that, we're on to meditation. This was our whole practice section in episode two. Uh, we talked about yep. Zazen Let's... meditation at a decent length. Um, we're not going to go. Into... We'll direct you back to that. for. Yeah, we're not going to yeah. go all the way back through that. You can go back to episode two if you need a refresher or pick up some of those books I mentioned. 
Um, just make sure whatever position you're using for meditation, you're fully relaxed. You may wish to do some basic yoga beforehand, get yourself all stretched out and prepped for meditation. Naturally, I prefer uh, Zazen meditation in the lotus position on a Zafu. Um, but if you want to sit in a straight-backed armchair, that will do. Um, in Write Your Own Magic by Richard Webster, uh, he discusses several different exercises, uh, which he considers meditations, including the ball of light meditation that we've discussed in the past. Uh, counting backwards one, which is strikingly similar to a practice I learned uh, from reading a beginner's guide to hypnosis many years ago. I actually, I think it was hypnosis for beginners was the title of it. And I integrated it into a number of my mental practices. He also discusses uh, mantra meditations, though, to be honest, there are probably much better sources out there for this type of thing. And I tend to fall in line with Phil Hines perspective when it comes to, to mantra, but you can read him for that. Well, whatever type of meditation you choose, uh, just make sure you're comfortable. Just get comfy. Yeah. Uh, a point that does need to be made is that when you clear your mind ground and center yourself and enter a state of no thought, you are becoming an axis mundi. If you remember from our episode uh, four, uh, an axis mundi is, as Phil Hine put it, a central axis which unites all zones of experience and states of consciousness. When you are in this state, you are at the center of the magical universe and can accomplish great things. In the interest of being a central axis that unifies all zones of experience and states of consciousness, let's take a short break to talk about your posture. Posture matters. It depends on what you're doing, what posture you're going to use. I do a lot of work from lotus position because of my affinity for and familiarity with Zazen. Though, I find my, I find my mind very focused in this position. Uh, it's not conducive to all of the types of work I need to do. Uh, there are conditions in which standing is more productive. Um, many will say never lay down because you're likely to fall asleep, but there are, are plenty of rituals in which this is also very productive. A meditative centered standing position might look like standing up straight, uh, with the chin tucked or slightly tucked the hands at the sides crossed over your chest. Maybe, uh, when drawing or releasing energy or executing your magical will, you might stand with your arms raised or outstretched point in a specific direction, maybe. Uh, if you're working in an Eastern system, you might use specific mudras. You might create your own hand gestures of significance. Uh, experiment, write it down, see what works best for you. Great. So at this point, we've grounded, we've centered, we've banished the space, we've cast a circle, we've meditated. Um, we're going to open our eyes. And if we're using candles or something like that, a flame, we might gaze at the burning candle let our intentions come to mind, experience our connection with the whole universe or the spirits or deities that we're working with. And then we're going to most likely, depending on the working we're doing, we don't always have to enter Gnosis directly, but if we're going for really strong, powerful work, this is the point where we're going to uh, probably enter Gnosis. So remember, this is a, a trance-like state of single-pointed focus, which we have discussed in a variety of different ways of entering um, or in earlier episodes. Uh, if you're living in a nation or province where cannabis is legal, I find that very low doses um, to be helpful in conjunction with other methods. 
remember Carol's words in Libra Null, the will can only become magically effective when the mind is focused and not interfering with the will. So we're trying to silence all of our internal chatter, flashes of images and other ideas that take other forms in our mental experience. Meditation is a great way to enter Gnosis, but is not the only one. If you prefer another method, feel free to use it. That said, entering Gnosis is not the single purpose of meditation. It is a highly important skill for forms of other forms of mental technology, and you, you should have a grasp on it. So entering Gnosis is not just essential for spell and ritual work. It's also the state you want to hop into prior to divination, like we've discussed before. So this is how you create a channel from which to do that type of work, get on that wavelength, if you will. So when you enter Gnosis, you are doing one of two things. You're either opening yourself up to be a vessel for channeling another entity or some form of energy, or you are opening yourself up to be a, a channel for your own will to be exerted upon existence. That bit about divination, I hope that answers your question, Julia. Yeah, Julia. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to talk a lot about invoking in this episode, uh, but be aware there may be instances in which you need to invoke certain gods or other beings or concepts in order to successfully complete your work. Uh, Carol describes this as adding something to yourself that is missing. You could also think of it as allowing your physical body to become host to a deity or something like yeah, that. Yeah, sort of like in the drawing down the moon ritual or some things found in voodoo and Vodun. Um, we'll talk about invoking later on in future episodes. And I say episodes because... We'll do a full episode on invoking. What's that? I think we'll do a full episode on invoking. We will, but I think it'll come up in different ways at different times because in chaos magic, it's very different from, say, um, high magic or ceremonial magic or, uh, you know, pagan, uh, what they sometimes call low magic, but uh, we'll go with, with Wicca. Sure. Um, yeah, so it, it's very different from those different systems. Uh, so. so we'll do a, a disambiguation of invocation, what it means, what it does, and what it's for. But that's for yeah, another absolutely. time. Um, on a side note, some of my favorite invocations are actually in songs. Um, in the beginning of Possession by Otep, there's a great invocation that I love. And like in the middle of that song, Destroyer of Senses by Shadows Fall. It's a pretty dope one. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm sure you're correct. It's because you're not a metalhead. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> I uh, was right. Cone of power. Cone of power. Um, so while we're going into cone of power, remember Einstein's law of physics as it is apply still applies here. Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. They just change from form to form. You will always be offering up a degree of your personal psychic and emotional energy to your working, even in a group setting, even when grounded and centered. Um, grounding is, in a lot of traditions, supposed to make it so that you tap into the Earth's energy or other spirits' energy um, so that you're not giving up all of your energy in a work, but you're always giving up some of your energy. And really, the better the prep work that you do, the better lubricated you are to give that energy up. So the less 
extraneous effect there will be. You might not be super sore the next day, but you will still be tired. Yeah. When magic is properly executed, you will feel a little bit drained. So be ready for some self-care afterwards. Definitely. Now, one of the classic methods of raising power for magical work is called the cone of power. In a group setting, uh, the circle of the cone is the coven standing around the circle um, or the edges of the cast circle. Uh, A physical representation can be used like, uh, I don't know, Stonehenge, for example. Uh, You could even do this on your own by casting a small circle, drawing it down in chalk on the ground, something like that. The tip of the cone So the base of the cone is the circle. The tip of the cone is often visualized or imagined, but sometimes has a a physical representation like the high priest or high priestess standing in the center holding, you know, the sword up to the to the center of the uh, circle. So to build this cone, you are going to imagine a bunch of blue white light being drawn in from all around you. The air, the trees, the floor, the ocean, the stars, Uh, the other people nearby, if there are any, and so forth. Uh, You'll allow it to fill your space and flow into the shape of the Cone of Power. Starhawk and many others have some very specific recommendations about what this should look like, but it's really all a matter of personal preference and traditional preference. Uh, Starhawk also recommends drumming, dancing, chanting, and clapping. As we know already, These have been used by nearly every culture worldwide to facilitate trance and enter gnosis. Uh, In a Wiccan coven context, this could look like the whole coven dancing clockwise around the circle, uh, again, perhaps while chanting and or drumming and or clapping. And I want to take a moment to try and describe what raising and manipulating energy has always kind of felt like to me. And it might be different for other people. I, you know, I've, I've read a lot of books and I haven't, seen too many people really describe what manipulating or raising energy feels like basically so by the time i found magic when i was maybe 12 or 13 i began right away with experimenting with energy work and one of the first two things i learned were projecting the index finger on my dominant hand into a magical sword and the palm of my recessive hand as a energy shield or magical shield, which is not really something I find useful at all. The sword and dagger idea, however, is incredibly useful. Um, that you know falls in line with the empty-handed gesture um, and not using implements as much to to work magic. It's probably easier that I learned that at such a young age. But when doing this uh, or drawing an energy or even just entering Gnosis, there's this, uh, I guess it's a buzzing feeling, not dissimilar to the combination of the feeling when your foot goes to sleep and a mild electric shock. Not like a static shock, more like licking a 9-volt battery, except all over. It's buzzing, there's a, a little bit of heat involved, some pins and needles, your thoughts go clear, and so forth. To me, it's almost like You've licked a 9-volt battery before, so you know what it feels like. And right now, you're holding a new 9-volt battery right next to your tongue. So you know what you're about to experience. And that sensation of remembered electricity combined with excited anticipation, that is, to me, what that sensation is most like. Mm, That's a good description as well. So back to the cone. As the cone 
begins to take form, you should begin focusing on your intended goal or your magical working with all of your heightened awareness. Focus until the energy falls or shoots off into the sky, and then you should relax. You should collapse. You should settle down. There are a number of different ways to hold the cone of power, do your work, and then release the energy. This is the meat of the ritual. So you've got your space prepared, you've got your circle cast, you've got yourself prepared, you've set up your cone of power, you've gathered power into your cone. Now it is time to enact your will and then release that power that you've gathered up. And then you'll do your wind down. So this is just one of many ways to be uh, doing energy work. Uh, Starhawk points out the energy doesn't have to be a cone. It could be a ball or a magic weapon, or you could create a chaos sphere, a a floating reservoir of magic that stays within the temple. Uh, Chaos spheres are discussed in Liber Null by Peter J. Carroll. Regardless what shape your, your platonic solid of power takes, once you've gathered power into that platonic solid, you then enact your will and release your desire. Uh, Webster says releasing your desire is best done by writing it on paper and burning it. Uh, This makes sense if you consider what we discussed in episode four regarding the censor, uh, the smoke carrying prayers up to the divine. You could also carve your desire onto a candle and then burn the candle while you hold your cone of power for this specific desire. Right. Um, Like candle, candle magic is interesting because, um, you can burn candles. So you like start the ritual, right? And then you burn the candle over like a period of seven days or you burn it until it burns out. Or there are a few different ways that you can use uh, candle magic. And it's like a, a longer term spell or ritual that, that takes place over like an extended period of time. And I think that's an interesting way to to carry on the magic. If you're going to do this, I might recommend making your own candles. Um, you can scent them with herbs that correspond with your desired outcome. Uh, you can align the color of the candle with that outcome. And uh, thinking of the request during the process of making the candle, sort of imbuing it with your own personal energy that way, kind of like you're supposed to do when you make ayahuasca. Um, shape can also be important. The structure of the candle might represent the structure or outcome the ma- of the magic you're trying to um, make stable structures versus something more rounded or tapered or even um, a human shaped candle or, or something like that. Depends on what you're going for. I feel like a, a really good method for longer term ritual like that is to make your candle in the shape of your platonic solid of power, because then that's a really good representation of the energy you've gathered, the shape that you've put it in, and it creates a sort of physical icon to hold that until the energy is expended. True. And this wasn't in, um, you know, our, our research putting this episode together or really in our notes, but just something I thought of just now from the magic of my imagination, um, when firing off that, that magical energy or whatever your, 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 you know, your cone of power, whatever shape that takes it, instead of firing it off, you could charge it into that candle. And, oh yeah. And it, leave it there until it like burns down and it will slowly release into the universe. So you could think of it that mm-hmm. way. As opposed to like a sudden release of energy 
could be more of a, a longer term thing. Yeah. Uh, Webster mentions a number of specific methods for dressing, blessing, and burning candles when doing magic. Uh, we will do an episode on candle magic specifically as a set of techniques later on, uh, but you can read Webster's notes in Chapter 7 of Write Your Own Magic for this. Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft has a section on it. Uh, Buckland wrote a whole book dedicated to candle magic. And a few other people have too. But yeah, there's a wide variety of stuff out there. Best is just to pick one up, follow some samples, and then be creative with it. Um, he also discusses a, ma- a method of magic using dissolving ink. That's Richard Webster, by the way. Okay. Magic using dissolving ink, which he learned from a lady in uh, Scotland. Uh, we're not going to teach you this because it, it isn't a common thing. It's not really out there. And I don't feel like it's ours to teach, but I'm sure you can you can find a, a used copy of Webster's book for like five bucks. It's worth it. Maybe an ebook. Maybe an ebook. Even better. You don't have to kill a tree. It's worth it for the variety of methods of meditation, desire release, and his correspondence charts alone. Especially if you're going for um, you know a very basic, stripped down practice without too much religion interjected into it. I would say a huge portion of the book, though, is useless chatter, but it's babble. It's babble. It's, it's babble. There's stuff in there that is incredibly useful and still makes the text worth it, in my opinion. I feel like that's true of a lot of text. There's a lot of text that meanders and wanders at least as bad as we do. And every here and there sprinkled in there is just some absolute gold. True that. He said, patting himself on the back firmly. <laughs> Webster also mentions uh, taking a moment to give thanks for all that you have in your life after releasing your desire. Uh, When I reread this book in preparation for this episode, the last time I read it, it was probably like 15 years ago. Uh, This really struck a chord with me and giving thanks is something I've, I've been trying to do a lot more lately, especially when it comes to like food and clean potable water, the air that I have to breathe. Um, especially if I'm out in the forest somewhere, certainly don't have to incorporate it into your practice, but it's, it's something I've been considering a lot more lately. I mean, we don't know how much longer we'll have clean air or water or stuff. And it's good to align ourselves with acknowledging when the universe does you a solid, like, you know, everybody appreciates that. I don't know if the universe has a singular consciousness, but if it does, no sense being a dick to that one. I know, right? Uh, Webster also suggests taking time to imagine the successful outcome of your work and doing so not only after you complete the performance portion of your ritual, but periodically throughout your days and weeks until it comes to be. As we've discussed in Chaos Magic in particular, you really want to forget the ritual desire you've enacted and let the universe work on that behind the scenes. Uh, but for people in other branches and traditions of practice, having that running through your head is part of the successful ritual operation. Absolutely. And let's just riff for a minute on like some other ways that you might release your desire. I mean, the classic one is like saying a spell, right? You have your your written out script of blah, 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 and so kind of thing. You've gathered your energy. You combine your desire and the energy you've gathered into the shape that you want. You've enacted that shape and that effort in your mind. And then you, you do a specific thing 
to bring about the end of the ritual. So yeah, chanting a spell or uh, a poem or something like that is very classic. Yeah, chord magic, uh, one we've talked about before, uh, channeling the energy into uh, knots that you tie on on a string and slowly and release. And untying the knot, yeah. Yeah, a series of days. What other ones are there? You ring a bell. To end the ritual, yes. You can yeah. ring a bell. Yeah. Um, that's like bringing the whole ritual to a close, though. I was thinking more things like um, you know, firing off the energy okay in in my practice those tend to be about the same step oh interesting that's yeah different to, different from my practice yep in terms of other things to do to, to fire off the ritual a simple clap of the hands is, oh. is classic yeah that's good uh, letting letting the thought form collapse in your head so like imagining your your cone of power expanding into a pillar and then fading away uh-huh. so a lot of that thought work can be done that way yeah i've seen um in a lot, some other traditions, uh, people that like work themselves into a frenzy into the, like the height, the peak of it. And then they just like collapse to the ground. And sure. that's like, you know, that the energy just dissipates. Um, so right. That's, a, that's and then allowing that energy to dissipate releases your effort and intention into the universe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, in some traditions, there's a, uh, another step. A lot of folks then would, would, refer to that as completing the ritual. Uh, So again, ringing a bell is classic for that, where you've done the thing and now the ritual is over and it's important to signify that the ritual is over and you're re-entering the normal flow of time and space. Yeah. Uh, So you ring a bell. um, Bow to the four corners. uh, That is the cardinal directions. Especially if you've called down the quarters. That's a, a courteous thing to do. Yeah, and I think if you call down the corners, uh, the quarters, and you're doing that, um, you also have to banish them when you're done, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Using the sign of silence is something that Krieg discusses in Modern Magic. And I think I could be wrong. I think that comes from the Order Templi Orientis or um, the other one. What's the other one? I have no idea. The, uh, no, can't remember it. It That's okay. It me at, at this moment. Krieg will tell us about it at length. Yes, he will. Krieg. Uh, you could make up something all your own. Yeah. I, you could you could do just about anything to signify the end of a ritual. Interpretive uh, dance. You could, an interpretive dance. Uh, ceremonially closing a book is one that I personally like, even if I wasn't referring to that book. Yep, yep. Blowing out your candle. And then you're going to deconstruct your temple too right so if you've cast a circle then you now need to uncast your circle right uh now in some cases maybe you've got more than one thing that you're doing if you're at like an esbot and you've got a bunch of stuff to do uh maybe uh signifying the release of one ritual's worth of energy doesn't mean the end of your full ritual setup maybe you have more magic or ceremony to do so then you want to do that and build your thought forms and your energetic platonic solids and release more desire and intention into the universe. And then you'll close down your circle and you'll wrap things up. It really is your show to, to move through as, as you please, uh, unless you're taking part in a group ritual and you're not the one in charge. Uh, and then you don't have to worry about a proper closing. Somebody else will take care of that. Well, with that, I feel like some kind of sample ritual might be helpful. Yeah, let's, let's try buzzing through a sample. Okay. Um, we won't go into excruciating detail here, but uh, here's something uh, you could do to say, like, bind and gag a coworker, not literally, from any speech or action that might adversely affect you or 
you know, keep them from telling a secret or something like that. Um, so it's kind of like something you would do instead of cursing someone. First thing you want to do is prepare all your implements, right? In right. Ca this case, you know, we're going to use some popsicle sticks um, that have been turned into little poppets. Perfect. You might have pre-inscribed them with sigils made from the names of the people they represent, or you might have a strand of hair from them or a fingernail or a little picture of their face stuck on there, whatever works. One of those laws of contagion connections that'll allow you to work through the representation. Exactly. Some cord, cloth, uh, candle, chalk, lavender incense, or whatever incense are pleasing to you, a little bit cannabis, because we're pretending I'm doing this ritual. Right. Um, if, if you're doing the ritual, there's definitely cannabis. Yes, there, there definitely is. And I'm a vapor. Um, I use a PAX and I prefer only loose leaf vape. But that said, I do not use electronic devices anywhere near my magical workings. Um, so it's going to be either in a bowl or a joint. I'm also going to bring some water because I'm going to get thirsty. Smart. You also definitely want to bring your script if you have one, the words you're going to say, the message to be burned, the basic step-by-step -step if you need them, uh, so forth. All right, so you bring all your goodies to your space. Uh, in this case, we are imagining it being the concrete floor of your garage. Yes, sir. Next, I'm going to lay everything out. Double check I have it all. Can't be forgetting anything. Can't break that make circle sure, once I cast it, right? Make sure you've got a window in the garage cracked. If you're going to be burning anything, you want to make sure you're in a ventilated space. Yeah, my garage has a pretty high ceiling, so I'm good on oh, that. That's good. That's fine. Perfect. Next step is to cleanse, banish, ground, and center. I'm going to sweep the floor, burn a little white sage, sit down, inscribe a circle around me in chalk, and then uh, use my own personal version of casting the magical space. You're probably going to uh, cast a magic circle, as we've described in this episode, to start out. So if you want the, the process of doing this written out to begin with on a piece of paper or your grimoire until you memorize it, that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, now you would take some time to do your personal flavor of meditation. Take a hit of cannabis, should you be so inclined, which in this case we are, uh, and proceed to enter Gnosis for the typical work that you do. Uh, you would raise magical energy through the use of uh, either the cone of power or whatever other method you personally find fulfilling. Exactly. After this, we're going to take out our wooden poppets one by one. We're going to hold them in our hands and visualize a connection between them uh, through the sigil carved on them or whatever else you've used to make that connection with the person that they represent. Um, you can do this by visualizing an image or interrelation or interaction you've had with them. Uh, the next step is the spell work. Uh, wrap and tie your cord around the marth around Morph. the mouth morph <laughs> Ra wrap and tie your cord around the mouth arms and feet of the puppet uh and in this case your spell is i don't know what's their name uh jim, jim. with this cord i bind you against any speech that might adversely affect me with this cord I bind you against any action that might adversely affect me. And so on. Saying all the things that you mean the ritual to do, ending with, so mote it be. So mote it be. Do this with each of the poppets, or just one if it's, you know, only one person that's causing you a headache. Then wrap them in a cloth 
and bind this together and say, I bind you with my will. My will be done, so mote it be. If you have like multiple of them, you can bind them all together in the same cloth. That's fine. Now you visualize them being incapable of saying or doing anything you basically want to stop them from being able to do, um, whether it's telling a secret or, uh, you know, whatever. Or being a jerk in meetings. Yeah, that's... Whatever it happens to be. When you've completed this, by whatever means you prefer, fire off your cone of power burn your script if you desire, and then deconstruct your circle. The last step I would add to this is to either keep the poppet or poppets in a locked box, or you could, it could even be a cardboard box just like tucked away somewhere where no one's going to find it. A symbolic vault of purpose. Sure. Or, you know, bury them under at least a foot of dirt in your backyard or another place where they will definitely not be disturbed. And with that, we've completed a sample ritual. So your thing to practice this week is all of this. Yeah, all of this, everything we just talked about. Practice casting circles, practice writing magical rituals, practice envisioning and enacting platonic solids of power, practice writing and reciting spells. Get into the nitty gritty work of the occultist and do something. Make some shit happen. Absolutely. And I highly recommend, I I can't emphasize this enough, if you're someone who's just starting out, uh, get some uh, magical correspondence charts and look at them. These are things that show you like what intentions are related to what herbs or what stones or what days of the week or, you know, phases of the moon, whatever it is. These are the things that are really going to help you. Like they're like the recipe books for helping to craft out um, your spell or ritual. These will be really helpful if you're, you're just getting into it. That said, be sure to, to let us know what you did and how it worked out on the fool's guide to the occult community page titled fellow travelers on facebook or on our instagram at fool's guide we would also love it if you would consider taking a look at our patreon every little bit makes the show better by getting us new resources and ultimately the fewer other jobs we have to do the better this show gets yeah absolutely and um on that note i'm slowly working on some like patreon exclusives that i'm gonna throw up we don't have tiers right now. Patreon takes more money away from us to set up a, a tier system. So like it's, I don't know, I think it's like 5% right now that they take from everything everyone contributes. If we set up a tier system, they want like 8 or 10% of the money. So we're going to just kind of have a, a general pay what you want, give what you can, and we're going to give back in any way we can. So We'll probably post like uh, episodes sooner for for Patreon um, payers and some behind the scenes like blooper stuff or maybe we'll come up with some special episodes too. They're just for you guys. I cannot begin to tell you how much blooper stuff there is. We are terrible at this. We we're not terrible at this. We just we're amazing, we but just, we're terrible at this. No, we just have some funny outtakes and bullshit stuff that we do sometimes that doesn't that is make it probably into an more accurate uh that whole like beefing with krieg promo video oh man beefing with from, krieg yeah that came from uh, my personal beef with krieg an outtake um it inspired me to throw a large slab of beef at krieg's book and video tape it and so. it couldn't happen to a nicer piece of literature <laughs> 
all in all, that that book is not a bad book. There's a lot. It's of not a bad book. book. He's not a bad dude. Uh, no. I just have deep personal disagreements with him and everything he stands for, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. Uh, a while back, uh, a lady on Instagram asked us to uh, do an episode on books, and I do not know how long it's going to be until we can put together a good... We might do a story. side quest on building your occult library. Yeah, but for now, I hope this will make you happy and and, and satisfy the itch for now. We're going to do a mini putting, bibliography. Yeah, we're putting a bibliography at the end of every episode. So, yeah, to kick it off. Uh, sources used for this episode include Write Your Own Magic by Richard Webster. Modern Magic by Donald Michael Craig. Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine. Libra Null by Peter J. Carroll. Spiral Dance by Starhawk. And the Satanic Bible by Anton Sandor LeVay. In conclusion. Next episode, we're talking about taxonomy of magical traditions. So that's going to be like a magical history lesson. And also, we'll give you some time to practice what you've learned in the past five or so episodes so far. We'll try not to make it too Silmarillion-y, but it's going to be a little bit more this came forth from this, and so too begat this, and then some assholes came up with chaos magic on the side. Like, the reason we're doing this is we feel it might be helpful for listeners who are true beginners on the road and don't exactly know what path of magical tradition they want to travel yet. We'll do, like, a little bit more involved overview of some of the most... I'm going to use the word mainstream, but it's really not. Of some of the most commonly accessible occult traditions and what they're like. In other words, we want to give you an opportunity to crawl upon the different branches of the occult tree until belief grows thin, it snaps, and all chaos magic ensues. But either way, I want to leave you all with this. In the book of Belial, in the Satanic Bible, Anton LaVey states, it matters not whether anyone attaches any significance to your working, so long as the results of the working are in accordance with your will. So, our purpose is done, and our circle is broken. Go back to the world enriched in knowledge and alight with laughter, at least a little bit more than when we started. So mote it be. So mote it be. So mote it be. Thrice bound and done. Until next time, listeners, fools out.